In our last episode, we discussed the first external school exams set by Oxford and Cambridge universities in 1858. In this, the second part of our two-part special on exams, we want to address that perennial question, are exams getting easier? Daisy, is it even possible to compare exams now with the exams given in 1858, considering how different they are? Uh, it, it is very difficult, you, Lizzie. You're absolutely right to say that. And in fact, it's, it's maybe the toughest exam question of, of all. I've put together a few reasons why it's not simple to just compare an exam paper from the past with one from the, the present and say, is it easier or harder? One reason is, is that even when you look at two questions and one just obviously looks harder, even then you can't kind of be precise about how much harder it was. So let's give an example. This is an example I talked about in the previous episode. Here's a question from uh, a recent GCSE paper. Circle the answer to 150 divided by five. And you have four options, 3, 30, 300, 3,000. And here's a question from the 1858 maths paper for the, the same age group of pupils. Divide 5,933,905,674 by 9. So that is an example where you look at those two questions side by side and you go, well, that second one is much, much harder than that first one. <laughs> and I think everyone would pretty much agree with that. Yeah, fine, it's harder. But that's only part of the question. So first of all, how much harder is that second question than that first one? Is it 10 times as hard? Is it 20% as hard? Is it three and a half times as hard? So if you, if you want to start to you know, calibrate things, you need something more precise than just saying, well, I think it's harder. And that's particularly the case if you want to look at not just two questions, but like a whole exam paper. You know, if you want to compare not just those two questions, but a 2023 maths paper with an 1858 maths paper, you, you need some sense of how all the questions combine together to give you like an overall difficulty a metric. <laughs> and the only way you can really do that is to have some kind of student responses to those questions. And then you can start to say, well, this is a hard question because most students get it wrong. This is easier because most students get it right. And then you can start putting numbers on things and, and what have you. And as we talked about last week and you talked about, you know, you, you've got an, an archive at Westminster School and there's lots of exam papers there, but often you just don't have the responses. And even if you have one or two, you don't have, for, for these really old papers, you don't have the detailed responses and the extent of the responses you'd need. That's one point. And then the second the second reason why it's difficult to, to do this is you need the student responses to see if anyone actually answers these questions in the first place. So some of these very fiendish questions might, might be on the papers, but students might just not be able to answer them. Third issue, it's not just that you need student responses. You need student responses from either the same slice of pupils, like a similar kind of uh, a type of pupil, or you know from a completely random sample of pupils. And again, when we look at those 1858 papers, a few hundred kids were taking them. They were self-selecting. They're probably kind of very high attainers. And in 1858, there's probably a chunk of the, the cohort out there of that, of that same age who may not even be able to read. <laughs> uh, if you've only got responses from 370 kids who are self-selecting, then that's not really able to compare with today in 2023 when pretty much every kid in the country will sit uh, in English language and a math GCSE. So then the other thing you need is not only do you need student responses, but you need student responses to the same questions. So you, again, you can try and build this sort of time series of performance over time. But obviously, the other thing when we look at these really old exams from the 19th century is the questions are asking, even in the same subjects, are often very, very different. Now, sometimes those differences may be contested. So, so Lizzie, you know, you and I talked last week about history and how uh, maybe people would argue about the value of factual questions or source questions. And actually, they might prefer one or the other. 
But sometimes the changes have happened for a really good reason that I don't think it would be very contested. So, for example, what you would call biology now and what's called sort of zoology, botany in, in the 19th century, the exams we were looking at, the first exams in England, the 1858 ones, they are published a year before Darwin's Origin of Species. There is loads and loads of stuff in modern biology papers that people just didn't know in 1858. So there's nothing about cells, mitochondria, all, all stuff that's staples of the current biology GCSE papers, just not there. And I think most people would accept that, you know, you wouldn't want to go back to that. So that makes it really hard to compare to, that the questions are just changing for whatever reason. Final reason, so five reasons in total why it's really hard to compare. The final reason, fifth reason why it's hard to compare just by looking at a paper over time is it's not even just enough to look at the relative difficulty of a paper. So say we can get to a point where we could say, well, you know, this paper is this many units of difficulty and this one is that many. Even then, that isn't answering the whole question because then what we have to look at is how is the paper being graded? So you could have a really, really hard paper that has a very, very low average mark, but actually the pass rate is is set quite low. So even though the pupils don't do very well on it in terms of scoring very highly on it, most of them pass. And you could have the alternative. You could have, uh, you know, have the opposite, sorry. You could have a paper that is really quite easy, that most students score very highly and get most questions right, but the pass rate could be really, really high. So very few of them pass it. So you've got all these issues going on that make it really, really difficult just to look at an exam paper and go, well, that's harder, that's easier. Um, So as I say, not a straightforward question here. That's quite a lot of problems, but that doesn't stop the media from wading in and declaring that these exams in the past are much harder nor does it stop the instinctive reaction that we have looking at them and thinking that, that they're rather more difficult than what we see today. Definitely. And I think we enjoyed going through all the exam papers and saying how hard they were, didn't we? And we also enjoyed uh, looking at the timetable where they do nine hours of exams a day. <laughs> and in fact, even assessment experts, I think, do sort of enjoy making those instinctive decisions. So I've got a copy of the, the Cambridge 1858 papers in front of me. And this is this was a facsimile that was published in, in 2008, I think, for the 150th anniversary. And they got modern examiners to comment on these older papers. And, and one of the modern examiners said, you know, the lower pure maths paper looks hard to me. <laughs> so, of course, we all want to look at it and make those judgments. There's nothing wrong with just looking at a paper and going, oh, that's a tough question. Oh, that feels hard. That's all fine. But if you want to be saying anything more... As I say, then you, you start to get into some statistical weeds and it starts to get quite complex. And hopefully what we're going to do in this podcast is tease out some of those issues and work out what we can say, what we can't say, you know, what, what it is possible to say about standards, whether they've, they've risen or fallen over time. Where do we begin? We've talked a little bit about the papers themselves, but also about the pupils who are taking them. What about the kids of today compared with the kids of the past? Can can we? Is there any way we can try and draw comparisons between the two? We talked in the previous episode a lot, and I've just talked now about these first sort of school exams in England, which are from 1858. But I think to get any kind of real comparison, we can't do anything really with those 19th century papers or even early 20th century. Uh, most of the research that does exist and the comparisons you can make, you kind of have to start post-war, uh, partly because that's when the sort of better, better record keeping is there. And also because that's when you really do get bigger numbers sitting in some of these exams. So you're not just getting kind of self-selecting small numbers. You're starting to get big, bigger numbers taking those exams and, and that gives you something a bit more to work with. So most of what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this podcast, it'll kind of be, yeah, post-war, post-Second World War. And in some cases, even maybe even more recent than that. And what about this phrase loved by the tabloids, greed inflation? 
yeah, this phrase grade inflation gets gets thrown around a lot. And grade inflation, it's not quite the same thing as uh, as saying are our students kind of better educated now or do they have sort of a higher attainment now? What grade inflation is talking about is does a grade now, like does a grade A or a grade B now at A level say, mean what it did 20, 30, 50 years ago? Or, or is it somehow has it been inflated and it isn't worth as much? That's not quite the question about are kids getting getting better or not, but it is a really interesting question and it is definitely one, as you say, that excites a lot of attention in, in the tabloids. Let's investigate a bit further. For my money, the very best study of this was done by a colleague of mine. I'm not biased at all. Um, his name's Dr. Chris Whedon. Um, and he did this paper in 2016, which is actually the year before I started working for, for No More Marking. Uh, but this is a really fantastic research paper. And it's not just me who thought that. This paper that I'm talking about won the 2016 British Educational Research Journal Paper of the Year. This paper was, uh, the, one of the authors was my, my colleague, Dr. Chris Whedon. Other authors too, uh, Ian Jones, Sarah Humphreys, Matthew Inglis. The paper title is... 50 years of A-level mathematics have standards changed. So it's really directly addressing this question about is a grade A in A-level maths now worth the same as a grade A in A-level maths 50 years ago? What they did to kind of set up this study is, well, first of all, they picked a subject. We talked about the difficulties of subjects changing a lot. They picked a subject that hasn't changed so much. So they picked maths A-level. And it has changed a bit, but, you know, there's enough similarities that you can make the comparison. And they also picked this paper. It was one where they had some archive responses from the past. So they didn't just have the question set. They had the responses too. Um, and then what they did is they used a technique called comparative judgment to assess the relative difficulty of the questions and the relative quality of the responses over a period of, of time, of decades. And... The people they got to make these judgments were foreign PhD math students. And that was deliberate because these were students who were not familiar. They were experts in maths, but not familiar, if you like, with the British system and some of the debates around this. And they didn't know what the study was about. So they didn't know it was about judging relative standards. So they weren't going to be any, wasn't going to be any bias. So what they were able to do as a result of all of this research is compare A-level maths responses from four different years, 1964, 1968, 1996 and 2012. So Lizzie, before I give you the answers, before I give you the punchline, like did standards change over those times? What's your hunch? I think the instinct is that there would have been some grade inflation. Okay, so so yeah, you're, you're right and that there is a bit of, of grade inflation. So let's let's find out what there was. What this study found is that between 1964 and 1968, there wasn't much change. So those were the first two years they were looking at, 64 and 68. The second two years they were looking at, 96 and 2012, they also found between those two years not much change. The big change was between 1968 and 1996. And what they found there is that the standard that would have got an E grade in 1968, that same standard would have got a B grade in 1996. So that's pretty big. <laughs> so is that more, is that better or worse or bigger, bigger or less? Than you, you know, um, is that, yeah, what, is that, is that more than you expected? What do you think? I'm interested in a way that there wasn't much change between 96 and 2012. How many more people were taking maths A-level in 1996 compared with the 1960s? Absolutely. So you've, you've, you've hit on the big, the, big, the big issue there. And actually, I think if you're looking at those dates, the big increase in, I think, students doing A-level math probably would have come between 68 and 96. 
the bulk of it. There'd have been a bit more of an increase between 96 and 2012, but I think the bulk of it's before then. Um, I'm not 100% on that, but I think that's right. So obviously that's a huge issue, and that was a huge issue with, with all A-levels. And the A-levels in the 50s and 60s went from being subjects that were done by, yeah, maybe 5-10% of the population to, I think nowadays, uh, something like, you know, over half of pupils are staying on and doing one kind of A-level or, or another. Maths today, I think in 2023, I think it is now the most popular A-level. So it's become incredibly popular. Um, so yeah, you've got huge increase in numbers of students taking maths A level. And that is obviously a major factor in what's happened here. Because if you have a, a larger slice of the cohort sitting in exam, that is inevitably going to affect how you set the grades. Okay, so let's just think of it. Just, you know, imagine you've got a grade set. You've got five grades you can award, like A, B, C, D, E. If you've got 5% of the cohort taking an exam, you want to spread out those five grades so that, <laughs> you know, it's a relatively even spread of the grades amongst the students. Once you've got an A-level with maybe the top 30, 35% of the cohort taking it, if you carried on distributing those grades in the same way, you would probably end up, you know, you might end up then failing <laughs> uh, over half the students. So you have to kind of redistribute the grades in some way when you're getting bigger numbers of the cohort, bigger proportions of the cohort taking it. What this study showed is that a B today is not worth as much as a B 50 years ago. Well, you know, one in 2012, not worth as, as much as one in, um, sorry, one in 996, not worth as much as one in 68. But I, I don't think, even though I think that is quite a striking and significant finding and it's very interesting, it's not just to do with dumbing down. It's not just to do with people saying, well, we've got to make it all easier. It, it is, a, in a sense, I would say, a rational response to more students taking this assessment. I think it is evidence of grade inflation, but it's not necessarily evidence of all the other things people would like to pin on that. It does take us to what the purpose of the exams and the grades is in the first place, really. It it, it absolutely does, yes. Why do we need those those um, certifications and, and, and what do they mean? Absolutely. And that is something that I think in some ways frustrates me about the exam system. It, it, you've got competing purposes here. And these competing purposes pull exams in different ways. So one major purpose of exams and A-levels in particular is essentially as a sorting mechanism to decide who can go to universities. And I'm not knocking that. That's a, a valuable function. But there's another function I'm really interested in and which actually clearly a lot of people are interested in because it is the kind of thing, as you say, that makes the, the news headlines is what, what are standards over time? And actually, the way you would design tests to suit those two purposes, they pull in different directions. If you want to know if standards are improving or not or not over time, you would design something in a different way to if you're, you just want to work out like which students from this cohort at this moment in time should be going to university uh, to study this particular subject. So there is definitely a tension at, at the heart of, um, you know, how you design an exam. And I think our A-levels do kind of always have sort of bias towards working out what's the right next step for pupils in this cohort. I'm also really interested in our standards over time improving. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. When you start to dig into this, you get to really fundamental questions about what's the purpose of assessment. And of course, some universities aren't really happy with the A-levels as that marker either. So they start to bring in their own tests and their own methods of assessment. So perhaps there's a case that the A-levels aren't really satisfying anyone. I think the A-level is a multi-purpose assessment. And as you say, when, when you have anything in life that tries to do a number of purposes, often it isn't quite optimal for any of those individual purposes. 
And I think, yeah, you, you have seen universities come up with their own entrance exams. And what you also see are sort of it, it, tiered exams now, are both, uh, you, you know, at GCSE and at A-level. So what you will also see is you haven't just got the A-level maths now, but you will have um, kind of extension papers that will help to kind of tease out some of the differences between students who are maybe all getting that top grade uh, on the A-level. And, and I think that's perfectly sensible. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know, that's a sensible thing to do, given given the, the numbers taking the A-level and the, 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 the different purposes they're being used for. Do exams today favour the median student rather than the ones at the top end? So let's let's think about this. Again, this is the question we can we can look at the data to think about. Because you will notice that throughout this episode and the previous episode where I was talking about the 1858 exams, I've been pointing out constantly again and again that nowadays, particularly at GCSE, we have exams that the entire cohort or, you know, very close to the entire cohort of 15 year olds will sit. And that was not the case in the past. And so therefore, when you're comparing it's not fair to be comparing an assessment from 1858 that 370 boys took with an assessment that in 2023 that 600,000 students took. And, you know, I've pointed out as well that in 1858, as far as we know, there'd have been a chunk of students who were illiterate. So, you know, it's not fair to look at a really hard question that 370 kids are getting right and say, oh, they were doing better. Like, that's not not fair. And one common response I will get to that is people will say, they'll make this point that you just made about the median and the high performing student. And they'll say, look, okay, that's fine. I get that nowadays we are doing a much better job at making sure everyone gets to gets to literacy, gets to full literacy. So the kind of lower attaining students and the median student are, are doing better. And that is a really good thing. And clearly, you know, lots of ways for, for those individuals in society, that's really important. But people will then often say, but I still want to know how are the top end students doing? How are these high attaining students doing? And I remember someone saying to me, you know, look, if we picked out, you're talking about these 370 students who took this 1858 paper. Imagine if we picked out the top 370 students in England today. Would they be able to answer some of these 1858 questions? Or, uh, you know, to go back to that phrase I used in the previous episode, you know, are we a fallen nation? Um, and are these top students just just falling behind? So the short answer is, well, we don't know. No one's going around and <laughs> picking out those top students and giving them the 1858 paper. But I, th- I think this is does come back to something you were talking about before, where we were talking about um, tiered tests. As an exam, as the proportion of the cohort who sit it increases, uh, it does then get harder for that exam to very accurately measure the extremes of attainment. And that's why in the end, then you start to need tiers, particularly in the case of subjects like maths. So nowadays, the best way of seeing how that top end of students are doing, it probably wouldn't be to look at the A-level. It would be to look at some of these extension papers, university entrance exams. Uh, That would be a better way of seeing how those higher attaining students are doing. And what, what you're always trying to do when you design an exam is you do want an exam that has a low floor, by which I mean most students can access it, and a high ceiling by which I mean the top students can excel. But in practice, tests like that are hard to create. If you put too many easy questions on a, on a paper, the, the, the higher attaining students can sometimes get bored and make sloppy mistakes. If you put too many hard questions on a paper, the lower attaining students can get very demotivated, feel very kind of uh, ground down <laughs> by seeing such hard questions. So there is an extent to which you kind of need tears to calibrate things a little bit more precisely and as I say we do have examples of that in the system at the moment and sometimes they get a bit of criticism 
People say, oh, you're creating a two-tier system. It's not fair. But again, people are not doing this to be mean or nasty. <laughs> They're doing it because it is really hard to design an assessment that gives you very precise, good information about students at every point of the attainment spectrum. So one of the other options, of course, is that you change your scale. And we've seen that recently with the GCSE grades changing from, from the old-fashioned letter grades to the, the number grades. Yes. Uh, what do you think of that as a solution? Yeah, so I, I did quite like that solution. So this is what you're referring to. It's a few years ago at GCSE. A new GCSE, new set of GCSE exams came in and they came with a new grade set. And so that instead of being the old A star to, I think it was G, the new grade set was nine to one. Now, I really like that because I think it got around this problem you saw with the A-level, the one we've just been talking about, is that if you keep the same grade set, everybody then assumes that, well, if it's the same grade set, you know, it's the same language, it's the same label, it should mean the same thing. But actually, when you get big changes either in the format or in the composition of students doing those exams, it's really hard for that grade to mean the same thing. So in a sense, if you're having a big change, a big disruption, I, I quite like the idea of saying, well, let's just start again with a new grade set and we can do things statistically behind the scenes that make it easy for us still to compare if we want to compare behind the scenes but for public understanding you know changing the grade set means look this is a new exam with a new a, a new you know a new a new grade set and you could argue that with this given that the a level as um, you know my colleague chris's research shows given that the a level grade means something so different now from 50 years ago arguably you could say perhaps at some point they should have done the same thing with the a level I've just said, look, you know, we can keep the A-level name, but maybe we just need a different grade set because a B today is, is not worth, uh, it's, not, it's not the same as what it was um, all these years ago. So it might be better to, to, to have that different that different set of, 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 of labels. Um, and what I'll say here as well, just sort of, you know, expand on this a little bit more. This is actually one of the reasons I, I don't really like grades. <laughs> I think they're quite distorting in a lot of ways um, because all they really are are just lines that are kind of drawn on top of a, of, a, of a distribution and they can cause a lot of distortions so they make people think that kids come in these neat pre-packaged categories that are labeled a b c <laughs> when all those are actually student attainment is is actually continuous um, and a student at the top of one grade has a lot more in common with the student at the bottom of the next grade than they do with a student at the bottom of their own grade. You're reminding me of one of my A-level teachers who used to grade essays A plus minus or, you know, B plus plus star. <laughs> right, exactly. And you get into all that kind of, of craziness because the, the reality is that grades, as I say, they're just superimposed on top of this continuous distribution. So student attainment is much more like something like age or height, than it is, as I say, coming in these, these these packages. You might think, am I just making this arcane assessment theory point here? And I'm honestly not. This is something that has really practical implications for pupils, I would say, from you know age five up to, even up to university level, where the 2-1 and the 2-2 and the first have the same issue, which is that everyone gets into this mindset of thinking that if I can just be shoved over a line and get that one point extra, that's a qualitative leap. It's not a qualitative leap. It's just one point extra. That's, you know, that's a, a thing I've, I do feel quite strongly about. And um, there's lots about it on the No More Marking blog, if you want to read more about that and the distortions it causes. And I think the other sort of distortion it causes, and this, I am going into the weeds a bit here of the, <laughs> the sort of detail of this, but one of the other distortions it causes is that 
you can have grades as we saw with that a level uh, research i referred to you can have grades that have changed their value over time but that doesn't actually tell you anything really about underlying uh, student attainment so what i mean by that is it would be possible it's theoretically possible for the grade inflation of the type i've talked about to be happening but it would still be possible even though that's happening that students underlying attainment could actually still be getting increasing and getting better. And I know that feels really counterintuitive. I think in the public's mind, it's like, well, grade inflation must also be equivalent to kids just not doing as well as they were. But that's not the case. And so for an, an, an analogy here, and <laughs> we can look at actual inflation and, and economics. And I don't want to get too deep into this. I mean, I'm not an economist and I don't want to bring down, you know, the ire of, uh, you know, Keynesians and Hayekians. But... It's clearly possible because we've seen it in the UK in the last 50, 70 years, whatever, for a nation to get richer, to get a lot richer and enjoy higher standards of living, even as the currency is worth less. So, for example, you know, I can always remember as a kid reading kids books set in the, you know, the 40s or 50s and 12 pence (laughs) would buy you enormous amounts of stuff. (laughs) And clearly, you know, when I was growing up in the early, you know, early 90s, 12 pence did not buy you enormous amounts of stuff. The penny, the pound in your pocket was kind of not worth as much. It's devalued. But I was also very aware that Britain nowadays in the 90s is much wealthier. We have a much higher standard of living than in 1945, for example. So, and as I said, I don't want to get into, you know, big arguments about about this in economic terms. I'm just trying to make the essential point that you can have underlying rising standards of rising living standards, rising increasing GDP, and the currency can still be kind of losing its value. That would be theoretically possible with assessment. You could have grade A and B that are losing their value and aren't worth as much as they were, but it is possible that the overall underlying attainment actually could be improving. It is possible. I'm not saying it's happening. We'll explore this a bit more. But I think this is one of the things I, I sort of dislike about grades. They just add this real layer of confusion. And what I'd love to see, um, at Noma Marking, the way we always report a lot of our attainment data, is just to try and see it actually as a, a distribution, where you can see the, the median, you can also see the extremes, you know, you can see the shape of the distribution, that actually, that get, and then you can track that over time. And that actually that gives you a lot more insight than these quite arbitrary lines on the distribution, which can move around and not mean the same thing, and just, yeah, generally kind of get in the way of, I would say, really understanding something. You've tried very hard to wriggle out of this, but... How do we answer this underlying question? Are the children of today smarter or perhaps better educated than children in the past or not? You're right. You're right. I have been, I have been wriggling out of it. <laughs> so I've, I've shown you that kind of grade inflation for this, this one A-level subject does exist. And then I've wriggled out of it by saying, well, actually, that doesn't tell us necessarily uh, about underlying attainment. So can we answer the question about underlying attainment? Can we say that, yeah, students today are better or worse educated or you know have higher or lower standards of attainment than students in years gone by? So there's a couple of, yeah, there's a few suggestive pieces of research. So one really interesting one is by two researchers at the University of Sheffield, um, Greg Brooks and Sami Rashid. And that looks at literacy and numeracy standards from, I think, 1948 to 2009. So they're looking across a real, you know, sort of decade long um, period of time. And they're doing it, as I say before, they're doing it really with reading and maths, because these are really the only things where you've got the, the data to be able to answer that. 
reading, they find some really interesting things. They find reading scores increase substantially between 1948 and 1960. Uh, and after that, they maybe plateau, they maybe rise gently. It's a little bit more complex. And with maths, the picture is fairly complex too. Um, and depending on what age you measure, there's some kind of contradictory data. So yeah, they're finding maybe some some rises sort of post-war, uh, and then after that, it's a little bit murkier, and maybe you know not 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 anything you can say with as much certainty. There's some really interesting international research. So there are a couple of big uh, international studies of student attainment which are really well designed. You know, they do all these clever things around having a sort of set of questions that are always reused over time um, that allow you to then actually very accurately compare question, compare performance on questions that aren't reused over time, that kind of thing. And that allows you to make comparisons. Everyone always focuses on with these questions on um, the comparisons you can make between countries. But actually, in some ways, the most interesting comparison is the same country over time. And for, for England, over the last 30 years or so, you would say most of them are sort of showing plateaus, small increases. There's, there is a suggestion a couple of months ago, the most recent international reading assessment of 10 year olds, that 10 year olds in England are really doing a lot better. So that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. A slight counter to that, and one that I think is, you know, the kind of thing that causes arguments between parents and children, is there was a very interesting 2012 um, OECD study, an international study, and it found that in England, adults aged 55 to 65, they had better basic skills in literacy and numeracy than 16 to 24 year olds. And I think England and the US were the only countries that that was true. In every other country, the youngsters outperformed the older people. But in England and the US, the uh, old people outperformed the younger people. So that is not, as I say, that is not a great one to um, uh, kind of inspire intergenerational harmony. Uh, <laughs> but it's quite interesting um, to, to think about. I could imagine my boomer parents being absolutely delighted by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did hesitate to bring it up because, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't always like, you know, the boomers have got enough. They don't need any more, do they? So <laughs> uh, they don't need any more praise, praise from us. But yeah, and that was back in 2012, which is, you know, 11 years ago. So things have changed, I'm sure, again. I'm sort of wondering what we want from this in a way. Obviously, we don't want the sense that we're moving backwards, but do we want a plateau? Is that really the optimal outcome? Or or do or do we feel that we can continually get better? It's a, a brilliant, brilliant question. So you could look at this sort of bit of a plateau and you could say, well, yeah, actually, is there an issue with that? You look at Finland, for example. Finland get loads of praise for their education system, but on all these international studies, they've been actually declining from a peak for, for the last, uh, you know, I think probably over a decade now. It's kind of ironic. From the moment they started being held as top performers, their scores have started falling. <laughs> so you could look at England, which is, as I say, plateau, small rise, things looking maybe particularly good the last assessment or so. And you could say, well, yeah, what's the, what's the problem? That's pretty good. And I think it is interesting. Yeah, what, what, you know, what, is, what, what do we want? And there probably is also a point that not many countries do manage to get really rapid, enormous, sudden gains on some of these international tests. It is kind of hard to, to improve on it. I suppose I always like to compare with metrics from elsewhere. If you look at life expectancy, uh, life expectancy, again, people might have said maybe the last few years in certain places it's plateaued or reversed, but we probably got used to a century or so of life expectancy rising. GDP, 
uh, you know, gross, gross domestic product, the economy. Again, last few years, maybe not great, but we've probably got used to that increasing. So if you sort of compare it with those other metrics, you'd say hmm, plateauing is maybe not great. But yeah, you could look at it another way and say, well, looked at within the international context. That's not terrible. I think my sort of personal take on it is you want to know if the changes you're making, you know, if you're bringing in changes to get improvements, you want to know if they're making a difference. And if you don't have some kind of measurement, you can't know. And it, it is hard, as I've shown, to get these measurements right. But I think it's in, in, important to know. I think, as I say, yeah, my summary of the of all of this data is hard to tease things out. We don't have it's not, not always perfect is probably maybe for, for, for England in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Plateau, maybe small gains. That would be my best bet. Um, and yeah, I guess it depends on, on how you think about that as to whether that's a, a decent outcome or not. We've talked about some of the practical reasons why examinations might have changed and why grade inflation might have occurred. What about some of the sort of more sinister and Machiavellian theories about grade inflation? You know, that, that governments do it to make themselves look better. You had a lot of these questions flying around maybe 10, 15 years ago, where people were saying, well, there's obviously been grade inflation. It's obvious that these grades are not worth what they were 10, 15 years ago. And again, people saying the government are manipulating them or must have prizes. It's a deliberate sort of strategy. I would, what would I say in response to that? I think, you know, so as I said, I do think there is evidence grade inflation's happened. Actually, the best paper I've seen that explains why it might have happened is by um, a researcher. I think he was at AQA when he wrote it. His name's Neil Stringer. And he sort of came up with this quite persuasive theory that, it, yeah, it wasn't sort of a deliberate <laughs> deliberate manipulation by anyone. It was simply a sort of change in the way that exams were marked in the 80s and 90s. It made it much easier that when um, examiners were marking them, if they were, it made it much easier in a sense, almost maybe for them to give the benefit of the doubt and so if there was a paper that was, you know, on the cusp of a grade or on the cusp of a mark, it made it easier. There was this, uh, you know, sort of technical change that were introduced that made it easier for examiners to give papers like that the benefit of the doubt. And that that might seem like a really small thing, but it can kind of compound over time and lead to some quite big changes. So that was a really interesting paper because it was suggesting that there probably has been grade inflation, but it's not come about as this deliberate kind of government manipulation it's it's the factor of you know maybe a, a technical change that had an impact that people weren't expecting and the other point i would make is the one i've been making all along which is there are just now more numbers of students particularly doing doing a level and that that has a big impact on the way things get graded and again you can have changes in the way things are graded that again are not about trying to manipulate and give people more more top grades but you know do change the way that the, the, the things that grades mean so I mean, my take would be it isn't sinister Machiavellian attempt. It's probably the result of lots of different things happening at once that have probably led to this. And what about different exam boards competing against one another and the suggestion that there might be a race to the bottom to try and create the easiest exams that most schools want to take? Yeah, so England is relatively unusual in that we have lots of different exam boards. There are lots of countries where essentially the Ministry of Education sets the exams. So we are quite unusual in, in having these different exam boards. And again, I would say 10, 15 years ago, this came to a bit of a head and people said, oh, you know, there are some exam boards who are just almost literally advertising, in some cases quite shamelessly, <laughs> that their exams are easier and that, you know, there'll be an easier text and there's sort of ways that you can 
sort of game the system. So how, how true is this? Again, why do we have different examples? Why is this the case? Again, it is not the result of Machiavellian attempt to dumb down standards. It goes back to a lot of the things we've talked about in the past on this podcast about the origins of the English state education system, that the fact that people are very wary until very late on of state intervention in education, very largely because of the religious question. So in our 1870 episode, which was about the first state schools in England, we talked a lot about how there was huge resistance from many religious groups about state funding of education because they were all worried that the other religious groups would get to take some of their, their taxpayers' money. <laughs> and they were also worried that um, those you know, the dominant religious group, in this case the Anglicans, would end up dominating everything, taking all the money and indoctrinating their children. Weirdly, that's also a bit of a factor in why we end up with these different all of these different exam boards that you've, as I say, just got this delayed entry, really, of the state into into education. And by the time the state does get involved, there are lots of different groups who are doing these jobs and, and, and you know, doing a pretty decent job of it, and they carry on doing it. So 1858, you have got the, these exams being set by Oxford and Cambridge, who, again, are not the state, they're, they're, they're universities. And you don't get first state schools until 1870. And those Oxford and Cambridge boards, they carry on setting their exams for a while. And then eventually they end up as, you know, the modern day OCR exam board derives from that Oxford and Cambridge, those original exams there. And again, when you look at the origins of most of these uh, modern examples, you can see they go back to a, a lot of these sort of organisations of, of universities and groups of universities in, in the 19th century. Now, is there a case for saying, well, that was all very well then? But actually, the way they've developed now, they've lost maybe some of their links with the universities. They've become independent organisations and having lots of them competing against each other is, is not good for standards. So, yeah, and I think this is this is why the, the government, why there's a regulator. So in this country, what we have is we have the different exam boards. We have a regulator whose job it is to check that standards are uh, kind of the same across across those um, across those different boards. And, it, you know, it does get complicated. <laughs> it does get statistically complicated when they're trying to do these things. As I say, I would say there probably was a bit of controversy about this sort of 10, 15 years ago. I personally would say, you know, probably not as big an issue now uh, as as it, as it was then. You know, there have been a few reforms there, which I think mean that is, is less of an issue. Yeah, I think, that, you know, there are certainly also advantages to having different exam boards. And I don't want to go all kind of uh, 19th century uh, 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 religious on you. But I guess it is nice that if you have different exam boards, you do have um, different approaches. It's harder for any, uh, you know, any sort of bad decisions by one to end up having that kind of outsize impact. So, yeah, it maybe is nice to have a little bit of diversity in the system. I guess that would be the the argument for it, a few few more options. So, so that would be the argument in favour of the, the different exam boards. We've had a really interesting experience with exams in the last few years with COVID and the disruption that it caused. First centre assessed grades, then a slight modification to teacher assessed grades. Do you think it's actually served to confirm the importance and validity of, of modern examinations? I definitely do. I absolutely do. And I know that after the, the real COVID disruption, there were a lot of people saying, oh, this shows we need to reform assessment and, and get rid of exams. Uh, and I felt it just showed completely the opposite. <laughs> I felt it showed just why we need exams, because it just shows you that for all the technology we have, it is really important to have some kind of an idea of how a student does when they complete work in independent conditions um, in, in a standardised environment that's the same as all of the other students who are doing the same task at the same time. 
that 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 is really important and that is the heart of what an exam is and that's what I think allows you to get a very fair measure a very fair and equitable measure of student attainment what you saw with covid is so many examples that you could see in the data and in some cases some individual schools where there was some some malpractice of where there were just um students who were who would get kind of given too much help uh, and maybe those grades they got you know just didn't reflect what was happening uh, kind of pre-covid and the thing I always say about exams, which is just so important, is that people will say, oh, are exams the fairest way of, of doing assessment? Um, and my thing is, they're a bit like democracy, you know, the, the worst way of assessment apart from all the others. And when people talk about fairness and they talk about underprivileged students, disadvantaged students, what we saw with COVID is something we see in the data again and again and again, which is that when you have assessments that uh, teacher assessments or assessments where the students maybe have a bit more latitude about being able to take the work home and uh, getting more help with it that all of those uh, kind of gray areas are gray areas that generally advantage students from more privileged backgrounds tend to exploit and you, I think you saw that with COVID there was some pretty suggestive data that it was independent schools schools from wealthier areas where um, maybe students at schools sort of took advantage of 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 some of those those grey areas. So that's why I think exams are important. But it's also, you know, just more broadly, if we go back to this point about why does any of this matter? And it's not, not just about the grades that students need to get into university, but seeing if our educational approaches make a difference. What I'm interested in is, yeah, if we do change the way we teach students, if we do have an idea that we've got a better way of teaching students, in order to know if that is working or not, we, we need some form of measurement. And in that's this sense, I think it's quite useful to view educational assessment as a branch of, of measurement. And if you look at science, you look at science in the 19th century, it advances a lot of the time as measurement techniques improve. So you get better measurements of heat, better measurements of time, better measurements of distance. That allows you to do so much more. And I think I hope what I've shown in this podcast is that we do know a bit about measuring attainment. We do know a bit about standards over time, but a lot of the measures we have are patchy and incomplete. A lot of the measures we have are not answering these really important questions about whether students are learning more. The assessment system probably is geared up to, to, to get students to the next stage of their education. And obviously that's important. But as I say, I think it is also really important to see if standards are rising or falling over time. So that's obviously, I'll finish with a, a plug for comparative judgment. That's one of the reasons why I do really like comparative judgment and love the fact that it's my day job, is that it's a very sophisticated measurement technique that I think lets you answer these questions. And as I say, I think these are important questions. Um, if we, if we want to know if, if schools and education and student attainment is improving over time. Thank you very much. In part one, we mentioned two pioneering women who had a transformative effect on education in Victorian England, Miss Buss and Miss Beale. Both promoted education for women through their work as head teachers and campaigned to allow female pupils to sit public examinations. To find out more, look out for our next episode to be released in September. Music